Okay, do grab a seat, um, and we're going to keep going with this um, Bible overview. We're through Genesis, and this week, beginning to look at the Exodus. And the theme we've been trying to sort of follow through is God's um, presence with his people, and Exodus will be a big step forward in that regard. Um, Have a look first of all, though, please, at Genesis 12. Might seem an unusual place to start with the Exodus. But Genesis 12, and what what we'll see in Genesis is actually there's a whole pattern of these, I don't know what the plural of Exodus Exodus is, are, Exodi, whatever. Genesis 12, we looked at it a couple of weeks ago with the call of Abraham, which is the famous first bit, but look at verse 10. Um, So Abraham has journeyed off to the land of Canaan. So he's arrived in Canaan by now. Verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there, okay, to stay there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his Sarah, his wife, I know you're a woman, beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they'll say, this is my wife. Then they'll kill me, but they'll let you live. Say you're my sister, and it may, well go, may go well with me because of you, and that my life be spared for your sake. Okay, not excellent behaviour from Abraham, obviously. Um, and when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. The woman was taken into Pharaoh's house, and for her sake he dealt well with Abraham. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, camels. <coughs> but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abraham's wife. So Pharaoh called Abraham and said, what is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? And I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him with his wife away with all he had. So this is the first exodus okay, in, in the, the Bible story. Verse 10, they go down to the land because of a famine. Okay, that's, keep that stuck in your head. And they go down to Egypt, this foreign land, where they're treated badly by Pharaoh. Now, okay, Abraham is sinning too, but Pharaoh obviously sins against him by taking the wife. They're then struck with plagues. Pharaoh is struck with plagues, and because of that, he sends Abraham back out of the land, and Abraham leaves richer than he arrived. Okay, so he goes down and comes back wealthier than he left. Um, it's the pattern going to be. It's going to be a pattern picked up with Jacob, the story of Jacob too. Um, Jacob, remember, it, Jacob falls out. Jacob and Esau and um, all that. Um, Jacob out of the land. Um, he's treated badly out there in exile by Laban, his father-in-law. Remember, he just tricks him into working for him seven years, marries the two wives, all that kind of stuff. Um, but he comes back to the land even wealthier than before. So this pattern of sent out, suffer, come back, wealthier than before is the kind of exodus pattern all the way through Genesis. And so it's, it's not a kind of totally new thing when we come to, to exodus proper. And that's where we're going to spend most of our time today. So come with me to Exodus 1. And we'll... We'll look at the Exodus uh, background. So this is the Exodus proper on your sheets. Exodus 1.1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his own household. So then you get the 12 sons. Do you remember the story of Genesis ends with Joseph going down to Egypt, sold into slavery. He becomes prime minister. Uh, and then his brothers, there's a famine in the land, just like Abram. So the brothers and Jacob head down to, 
to Egypt too, and they settle there. And in verse 5, we read all the descendants of Egypt, Jacob, were 70 persons. So there's 70 of them. Um, why 70? Okay, this is, this, is, this is top of the class question. Why do you think there's 70? Why are we told there are 70? Other the fact that there were 70, but why is 70 significant? It's the number of nations in the table. Yeah, exactly. So Genesis 10. They get Ethan top of the class. Genesis 10, just before the um, Babel narrative, all that, there are 70 nations in the world in, in Genesis 10. When God lists the, the nations of the world, there are 70 nations. Um, they all go into judgment in the flood and Babel and all the rest of it. And now there are um, 70 sons of Abraham. So the, the people of Israel are going to be the new um, people who are going to go forth and multiply, fill the world. And indeed, that's exactly the language used of them, verse 7. The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and grew strong. So the land was filled with them. That's echoes of Genesis 1, isn't it? Adam was meant to go forth, multiply, fill the earth. And here, now the nations have got it wrong, here Israel are being blessed in that way. And as we'd expect from Genesis, it's, it, it meets with attack. There's always an attacker, isn't there? Someone trying to ruin God's plans, be it Satan in the garden or... Laban or Pharaoh, whoever. Here it's, it's the Pharaoh of Egypt. Um, I, I'm, I'm assuming you know the, the sort of big picture story relatively well. So he starts slaughtering the, the baby boys. Um, and uh, it, it looks like he's going to be able to wipe out Israel. Um, slaughters the boys, of course, because he can take the girls into his own, you know, um, to his own people. They can be kind of maidservants and wives and everything. But it'll, it'll wipe out um, Israel if he can get rid of all the men. And then you get Moses. And the, the, do you remember the early days of Moses? Moses becomes a pattern um, for everything that's going to happen. Moses is born as the baby boys are being slaughtered. So he bore, is born under threat of the king killing him. But what happens is his, his, his mum takes him and puts him in the waters. In fact, the word used to describe the little basket that she makes for him is an ark. Okay, it only comes up earlier in, in Genesis in, in Noah's ark. It's that word. And it's even described as being coated in pitch, just like Noah's ark. So, so, so Moses is going to become the kind of the next saviour figure after to Noah. He's put in the waters. He's brought through the waters, saved from the reeds. Um, he's put into the, the, the reedy waters, that they're, they're called. And, you know, he's, he's hoiked out by Pharaoh's daughter. He grows up in blessing in Pharaoh's household. Uh, and then you get this incident in, in chapter 2 where he, as a, as a grown man... Um, he sees uh, an, is- uh, sorry, an Egyptian mistreating an Israelite and he strikes down the Egyptian. Um, and he does so in injustice. He's not a murderer. So in Acts 7, um, when Stephen's looking back on this, he doesn't say, hey, even Mo- Moses is a murderer. You know, those kind of things that you hear preachers say, you know, David was an adulterer, true. Um, Paul was a blasphemer, true. Moses was a murderer, not true. Um, it was it was justice. He was a prince, and he it, it, um, Stephen portrays it as an act of um, rescuing the, the Israelite from oppression. But another Israelite basically threatens to kind of dob him in and all the rest of it, and so he flees himself. And Moses has to go into exile. He heads out into the desert, and he's there forty years. And it's in the desert that he meets God in the burning bush in Exodus three. And the burning bush is, is, is on Mount Sinai. Moses is at Mount Sinai when he meets uh, God. Um, God's words to him are that you will come back here 
and worship. Now, the significance of all that is Moses is living in miniature, in sort of shadowy form, all that's going to happen to, to Israel. So through the waters, Israel are going to be saved through the waters on the way out, aren't they? Out into the desert, Israel are going to head out into the desert. 40 years, Moses is away. Egypt are going to be away. Sorry, Israel are going to end up 40 years in the desert. Um, what else is there? Coming to Mount Sinai to meet God as a sort of fiery, who appears in fire, in fire burning bush, fire at the top of Mount Sinai. Moses is like, is like the head and Israel are the body. Everything that happens to the head first will then be true of the body. Okay, it's another little Christ picture, isn't it? Jesus comes first, suffers suffering, death, resurrection, glory. Later, that's going to be what happens to his people. Okay, life is hard. Eventually, we head down to death, but we will be raised to glory. <coughs> and so, what's Moses is sort of, at least on that track, beginning to live out that pattern. Um, God comes to rescue um, the people as a whole. If you're at the beginning of Exodus, Exodus 2.23, really crucial little passage why the exodus why is god coming to rescue during those many days the king of egypt died and the people of israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help their cry for rescue from slavery came up to god and god heard their groaning and here's the key bit remembered his covenant with abraham with isaac with jacob God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Why? There's lots of people suffering in the world at this point. Why why is God coming to rescue the the Israelites? It is because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Because of that relationship, that promise, right back in Genesis 15. Um, The rescue is because of the covenant. And therefore, what gets given to Israel... And promised to Israel is exactly what was promised to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Jacob's new name was Israel, wasn't it? So these are the Israelites. And so you just look across the page, chapter 3, verse uh, 7. Um, what has God promised to the Israelites? I've seen their affliction. And then verse 8. I've come to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land. A land flowing with milk and honey. To the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites. In other words, the land that I promised um, to uh, your forefathers is the same land. And right there at the end of the, uh, that little speech, end of verse 12, you shall serve or you shall worship God on this mountain, God says to Moses. Okay, you'll be back here with the people on this mountain, just as you are now in front of the burning bush, and you will sa- save me. So chapter 3, we get God prophesying, promising Moses what will happen. Uh, it's going to involve the plagues. That's prophesied in verse 20, 21. It's going to involve, if you look, this is often a bit of the Exodus we miss. End of verse um, uh, 22, or sorry, verse 22 of chapter 3. Uh, when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask her neighbour, any woman who lives in a house for silver and gold, jewellery and clothing, you shall put them on your sons and your daughters, so shall you plunder the Egyptians. So Israel has gone down because of the famine in the land in the days of Jacob and Joseph and the brothers. They've been oppressed, enslaved, and they're going to come out wealthier. Okay, what was the same pattern? It'll be in Esther as well. Down, but then up. It's like a tick. Okay, there's always a bit of a down, but then at the end of the, the story is higher than the beginning. 
I'm not going to walk through the story of the Exodus, the plagues, the Red Sea, back and forth with the snakes, all that kind of stuff. I'm, I'm guessing you kind of know it, so I won't go into the details. I put a little sidebar on there just for those who are interested. Um, the date of the Exodus. We're, we're into kind of more measurable history now um, in terms of kind of ancient Near Eastern history and things. There is a debate as to when the Exodus happened. Um, sorry, there's a typo on there, a bad typo actually. Some people think it was early, in about 1446 BC. Um, others think it's later, not in 120 BC, but in 1200 BC. Okay, so I missed out a zero there. Um, and it's a kind of debate, some of it's about archaeology. So interestingly, for that early date, um, people have found records of Canaanite kings. So kings in the land of Canaan, writing to Pharaoh, saying, come and help us come out, this new people is taking over the whole land. Yeah, it's interesting, huh? exactly what happened with Israel, so going and taking over the whole land. So that might kind of point to an earlier date if, you, if you're into your archaeology. Um, but the crucial thing is in 1 Kings, let me turn it up, let me just read it to you, 1 Kings 6. Um, here we go, 1 Kings 6. The author looks back, so we're in Solomon's reign by now, and we know, it's, we know from other things that Solomon in the fourth year of his reign is about so 967, 966. Um, 1 Kings, what was the verse? 6-1. In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign, he began to build the house of the Lord. So 480 years after the Exodus was the fourth year of King Solomon, the author says. So given that you know when King Solomon reigns, you can then kind of reverse the maths up. The difficulty is... Um, is the author giving an exact number of years, 480th year, um, or is a generation in the Bible is 40 years? So is he doing 12 sort of idealised generations? Don't know. Um, but that would lead you to different dates, depending on which way you go with it. Either way, that's roughly where we are. Okay, Either the sort of 1200s or the 1400s BC. Uh, and we're definitely into kind of um, measurable history <coughs> discoverable history okay I'll, I'll do a little bit more and then we're going to do do some discussion so the rescue comes um, the story of the exodus you'll know well and it all culminates at sinai um, come on through exodus to chapter 19 so the first sort of 18 chapters of israel of exodus are getting getting Israel out of Egypt, okay, all the plagues and the crossing of the Red Sea and the Passover. And in chapter 19, they've arrived. Verse 1, on the third new moon after the people had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. Here they are. They're at the mountain where God met Moses in the burning bush. And what God does is gather them at this mountain um, and renews that covenant, renews that sort of relational promise to his people. Uh, he talks about the covenant in verse 5. Therefore, if you'll indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. He's going to go on to explain what that covenant is. Um, it'll take about five chapters. So three to chapter 24 for him to explain what this sort of new relationship is going to look like. But at the end of it, he'll say, so write all this down in the, in the book of the covenant. And he gives them the ark, the ark of the covenant to hold the Ten Commandments in particular. We'll come back to that. So this covenant, this relationship between God and initially Abraham and his people and then Isaac and then Jacob and his people is now with the whole of Israel, okay, the whole people of Israel. 
But it is, remember, still the same as the relationship between Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not a totally new era, totally new dispensation or something. God hasn't changed how he's going to relate to his people. It's still, it's still God offering the gospel to Israel. Uh, what he's calling for them to do is still, first of all, to believe. Um, and the reason I say that is sometimes you hear people explain the, the Old Testament story as something like this. Um, we know Abraham was all about grace and faith, because Paul says so in Romans and Galatians. So Abraham was all about grace and faith. And then when they got to Sinai, God made it all about law. Um, you've got to keep the law if you want to be blessed. It's all about doing and earning your blessings. Um, but they couldn't do that. It all failed all the way through the rest of the Old Testament. So thankfully with Jesus, it's grace again. Um, I don't think at all that is the story. Um, it's always been grace and faith all the way through. I put a few little things down there on the sheet. First of all, God can't go back on his word. Imagine you're an Israelite who's heard the promises. I'm going to give you the land by grace. Just receive it by faith. And you, you believe that all the way through. And that's great. Abraham's generation, Isaac, Jacob, all the 400 years in between. And then you get to the land. And just as you're about to go in, God goes, actually, do you know what? It's all about works now. Like, that's totally going back on his promise. Totally undermining his, his promise from Genesis. God doesn't change his mind. The other thing is this whole covenant, we haven't got time to look at all the details of it, but remember this whole era is, is full of, well, it's just full of pictures of grace. It's full of sacrifices. So it's this Mosaic covenant or Israelite covenant, if you like, that's got all the details about, you know, the animal, you confess your sins over the goat and it dies for you and all that kind of stuff. We'll think about the tabernacle next week. So it's full of pictures of, of grace, of forgiveness. And lastly, I, when um, this, this covenant that kicks in at, at Mount Sinai, this stays in place all the way through the Old Testament and therefore right into the days of Jesus. Okay, so this will stay in place until the new covenant kicks in with the death and resurrection of Jesus. Okay, so this is going to be the covenant that, that governs the whole of the Old Testament and the Gospels. And when Paul kind of looks back on it and, say, and, and, and is answering the question, what, what is it that, that Israel got wrong? Okay, what, why did it go so badly? Um, why did so few, few people believe in Jesus? Why do the Pharisees think it's all about law and works? You remember the Pharisees constantly saying you've got to try harder and be better. Um, he says this. This is Romans 9, uh, 31, 32. Israel pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, but did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. Yeah, that's a really crucial verse. What, what was the problem with the Pharisees? The problem was, hello, the problem was they tried to achieve righteousness as if it were by works. They read the Mosaic Covenant, they read the Old Testament as if it was all law, try harder, be good. But actually, says Paul, it was never meant to be that. And that's really, really crucial that for the rest of our reading of the Old Testament, we realise that what they're meant to be doing is believing, first, God's unconditional grace and mercy and forgiveness, and then in response, obviously, living lives of obedience. It's the same as us. You're saved by believing, aren't you? And then, of course, you, you obey afterwards. But that obedience isn't what kind of merits you the blessings. The Old Testament, the New Testament, the gospel is the same all the way through. The Pharisees, in other words, were genuinely wrong. 
Um, if you're someone who thinks that the Old Testament was all law and obedience, then when you get to the Pharisees telling um, all the people in Jesus' day, you've got to try harder for us to be blessed by God, you've got to say to them, yeah, you're right. The Pharisees are right. Okay? If the covenant really was one of works, then it wasn't okay just to say, well, we can't do this, God, good trick, um, but you know, we realise we can't do it, so let's have some grace. They've got to try and obey the covenant because that's what they're under. So the Pharisees would weirdly be right. Okay, so it's, a, it's, a, it's another covenant of grace. It's the next step along from Abraham, but the same deal. And it ends, this is a lovely bit, and you're going to go to groups after this. So it ends, um, Exodus 24, the ceremony. Whoa, little girl. Exodus 24. Um, it, it ends with this amazing ceremony. Um, the marriage supper of, of Yahweh and his people. Covenants are like marriages, okay, binding together of two parties. In fact, marriage is called a covenant in the Bible. Um, it's not a contract. If you do this, then I will love you. It's an unconditional promise. Okay, I will be yours forever. Um, Exodus 24. So they're all at Sinai still. We're going to look at what happened in a bit more detail next week. But they're all at Sinai. Verse 1. He, God, said to Moses... Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, it's Moses' brother, Nadab and Abihu, it's Aaron's kids, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Okay, so the people at the bottom, the 70 elders, and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu, they go up. Um, Moses alone goes right to the very top. Uh, What happens? Uh, They go up, verse 9. Blood is sprinkled on everybody in between. Then verse 9, Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, the 70 elders of Israel, went up. They saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire and stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Rescue, covenant, and then meal together to celebrate sitting and eating with God. That's the kind of high point. And again, if you, if you think of this whole story of the Bible, that is where we're going, isn't it? The whole Bible heads um, towards Revelation 20, 21, 22, the marriage supper of the Lamb, when we sit down and eat um, together in glory. That's why our services are patterned in that same thing. We confess our sins, reminded of forgiveness again, that the word of the covenant, the book of the covenant, the Bible, in other words, is preached to us, but it culminates in the in the supper, the Lord's Supper, the little foretaste um, of the, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And this little kind of symbolic sitting down and eating with God in, in peace. To sit down and eat with someone shows you're in, in fellowship with them, at peace with them. And so the, the, this, this, this is a huge next step in God's relationship with his people. Next week we can think about the tabernacle and all that sort of thing and how the, the presence of the Lord draws nearer to But this next covenant, as I say, is going to dominate the rest of the Bible. But what? Or let me let me pause. Any questions? You're you're going to do a load of group work now. Any questions at this stage? (laughs) Just on the Exodus 19, just verse five is quite confusing. If you obey me, yeah, and keep my covenant. Yes. 
so it's, it's what is the obedience? What what is so? Um, what does it mean to obey the, the 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 covenant and keep the covenant? And that that's the question. It's it's not do all the laws and earn the blessing, but it is as it continues to be. Tr- trust me, trust trust God. So the obedience of faith. So a bit like bit like Romans one, the gospel is the obedience of faith. Um, or uh, back in oh I don't know if I can find this quick enough when the we did it last week when the promises are passed on to Isaac in Genesis oh I don't think I'll find it you get the same language that it is because Abraham kept my covenant and walked in my ways and blah 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 and we know the Abrahamic covenant was gracious like no one argues about that so would it be like the beast I can't I can't the obedience being included and food and do the sacrifices not because the sacrifice in the model itself gives but obey my laws but also trust all for forgiveness when you have so that's the sort of thing well yeah although you don't want to mix you don't want to kind of smuggle obedience into the actual gospel bit as it were so if if, if, if with Abraham it's justified by faith alone it's justified by faith alone at Sinai as well and the, and the whole Mosaic Covenant, as it's the same structural deal. Um, as we know, when you're genuinely justified and saved and all the rest of it, that works itself out in obedience. Um, so that's why even, even in the Gospel era, you know, Jesus can say you're justified by your works. Sorry, you're justified by your words. You're like, whoa, 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 Jesus, you mean we're justified by faith alone? Um, okay, it's, just, it's, it's, like, it's all the fruit and root thing again. The fruit is evidence of the, the root, I think. Yeah. <coughs> Let, let's think a little bit about the law. That's what you're going to be thinking about. Um, so, there's obviously in this covenant era way more laws. If you know anything about kind of Exodus, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, loads of laws. No boiling goats in their mother's milk and don't eat prawns and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, so, we're going to think a little bit about this. Um, the, the law comes in various places. Um, there's loads in Leviticus, loads in Deuteronomy. But the, the first sort of batch, the book of the law, is Exodus 20 to 24. Starts with the Ten Commandments and then goes into some of the other laws. Um, so, round your tables, this is, just, this is, honestly, this is a basically random selection of them, okay? We could have gone anywhere, we can't look at all of them. Have a look at Exodus 22, 16 to 24. Okay, so you're just looking at some of the laws, some of what obedience looked like for the Egyptians. Sorry, for the Egyptians, for the Israelites. Have a read of those verses, and then two or three questions on the uh, on the sheet. What, if anything, surprised you about them? How to react to them? Can you think of some ways we might be tempted to react that might actually not be very helpful? And then, what do you think we're meant to do them as Christians? Okay, it's in the Bible. What do you think we're meant to do with them? So there you go. Uh, have a read, 22, 16, 24 round tables, and then um, have a crack at those two questions. Okay, let's come back together. Here's some feedback. Um, just on that first one then, what... Um, if, even if you don't want to give yourself away necessarily so you can be kind of like, I imagine people would... Um, what, what's, what's, what sort of things jump out, strike you? I can't remember how I phrased it. How do we react to them when we read them? No one wanted to give themselves away. Uh, yeah. I just want to say that I think the 
suppose initial responses, most of the account sounds straight, uh, well, fairly straightforward for us, apart from the channel of the middle sorcerers, so that's something a little more out of the blue, don't quite know what that would look like in these, this day and age. Um, but just actually for uh, a fair few of those you put into today's culture, and you, if you try and tell, you're trying to tell people that's like, especially like the relationship one, you're letting um, a father have that much of a say in yeah. who their daughter should be with, um, yeah. and money having to be paid, and like you have to marry, especially marry a woman that you sleep with. Um, I just yeah, no, I think that's fair. Would not go down well at all. Yeah, I think that's a fair summary. If, this, if, you, if you started a new political party, um, Hugh for Parliament, and these are your lessons. Hi. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, not not <laughs> not pretty, probably. Yeah, and if we're honest, we're gonna have to. So I lost track of time a little bit. Um, if we're honest, at times as Christians, we read these laws and think, "Oh, don't like that." Oh, I'm glad I'm not living in that era. Um, oh, they're a bit harsh, or all sorts of things. Now, I know they're difficult to understand at times. We're in a very different cult- cultural context, and there are certain things, particularly about understanding of depending on what translation of the Bible you've got, but slavery or whatever, where you don't want to read back into, for example, Exodus. What Exodus says about slavery, don't read in the understanding of slavery that we, the horrors of slavery we know about from the you know, slave trade much, much later, for example. It's, it's a very different kind of thing. I haven't got time to talk about that now. But, um, but in general, we've got to be careful we don't read these laws and see them as wicked. Okay, this was the time that God, the Holy Spirit, wrote a country's constitution. In fact, it's the only time in history that God the Holy Spirit wrote a country's law book. Um, and there's just, I think there's quite often a bit of a danger for us, isn't there? It's kind of way more sophisticated 21st century, um, enlightened, liberal, democratic <laughs> Christians that we read them and think, well, obviously, it's not, you know, there's a few things we want to change about the UK legal system, you know, maybe, but basically ours is way better. Or US or wherever you're from, you know. Um, and, oh, this stuff's awful, you know. Or, I'm, glad, I'm glad I live now, not then. Um, these things sneak into our minds and they're just a bit of a giveaway that perhaps our understanding of justice and righteousness and all the rest of it are not the same as God's. I think particularly in areas of, well, there's all sorts of areas, um, uh, but the things that shock us are things like um, the fact that there's capital punishment written in there. Now, again, that, it, as we're going to talk about in a minute, that doesn't mean one-to-one, you just take this and put it, or we, we want to take this and put it straight into the kind of British constitution. But... Um, when God set up a country, he did it like this. So we, we can't have a position that capital punishment is always wrong. Okay, because God put it in place. You might have a position that says we shouldn't put it in place now because I don't trust the British government or whatever. That's fine. That's a political discussion. But just as a kind of a basic ethic, God set up a system where the penalty for murder was murder, was death. Um, and, and we need to do something with that. Similarly, kind of family... Um, uh, male-female relationships. When have you read a book or heard sessions on biblical manhood and womanhood and they've gone and, and looked at the law in, 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 um, in Exodus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, whatever? Almost never. Because we sort of, in the back of our head, it's always oh, really oppressive. And So we read in Numbers that if, if a wife makes a promise, 
and her husband hears it um, and doesn't say anything, then, then the promise stands. But if he hears it and says, no, 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 that's not standing, then it doesn't stand. If I said to you that this morning, you know, um, Rishi Sunak's brought in a new rule. Uh, if a wife makes a vow, her husband can cancel it. You'd be furious, you know. Not, I mean, the church would as well as the world. So it's those sort of things that shock us. But we, we need to just be a bit careful, I think, when we read the Old Testament. Um, and, and it's a real test of whether we're going to let Scripture be authoritative or our hearts. Um, what are we meant to do with them as Christians? Um, we're not meant to literally just say, OK, we're going to obey them directly because we're in a new covenant era. It is different. OK. Um, and even if you're reading them and you're, you're like, I have no idea what to do with this. They do a few, a few things for us. Perhaps they show us the seriousness of sin. So even if we're what on earth is you know, executing a sorceress, what's that about? Um, the fact that God is prepared to judge something that seriously should show us that sin is, is very serious, for example. Um, but a very quick take on the law today, just as we, as we wrap up. Um, very roughly, Old Testament law is sort of, has three categories to it. Moral, civil, and ceremonial. There are moral laws, civil laws, ceremonial laws. The ceremonial laws are all about sacrifices. So you'll read laws about, you know, if you sin, bring this, this kind of animal and sacrifice it, or um, ritual cleansing, or if, you're, if you have a skin disease or uh, bleeding, or all these sort of things. They're ritual laws about the tabernacle. Those are now all fulfilled in the gospel, hence we no longer sacrifice animals and don't have a temple to go to, all that sort of stuff. They all are fulfilled in Christ. Um, so, for example, Jesus declares all food clean in Mark 7. So all those laws about not eating prawns and whatever, gone in terms of direct obedience. doesn't mean you can't learn lessons from them, but you don't directly follow them. Um, then there are civil laws about the government of Israel. If you're going to have a country, you've got to have some laws that just govern the country. So there's a law about building a, a sort of, on your roof, you've got to build a parapet around it, okay, a wall around your roof. Does that apply today? Well, no, that they're in a particular country that had flat roofs and blah, blah, blah. Um, so you don't obey them directly because we are no longer the state of Israel. Okay, the, the, Israel was a country as well as a, a church, if you like. Um, so we don't obey them directly, but the Westminster Confession talks about the general equity. They may have a principle in them that we do need to take a moral principle kind of in them, as it were, that we do need to, to, to learn from. So take the building a wall around your roof so you don't fall off. Um, okay, you don't have to build a wall around your roof because you've probably got a pointy roof and no one goes on it. But um, you are responsible um, if you're, let's say you're a landlord, you're responsible for the upkeep of your building so that damage doesn't come to your tenants or something like that. Or you've got a swimming pool, you're responsible for fencing it in so kids don't fall in, those sort of things. There's a principle there. And then finally, there's the, the moral laws. These are the ones that stand forever and that you do obey, whether you're um, Moses, Hannah, Samuel, Daniel, David, or um, Hugh Mary and James. They're the same all the way through the Bible, or Adam in the garden. Uh, and they're summarised the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are marked out. They're named as the Ten Words. They're given separately to these other laws. They're carved by the finger of God in stone, unlike the other laws which are just dictated. They're put in the Ark of the Covenant, whereas the other laws are just put next to the Ark of the Covenant. So they're marked out even at the time as special. And that's because the Ten Commandments summarise this moral law. And moral law is, is kind of law that reflects God's holiness and our place as his people. And it never changes. Adam has to keep it. Adam can't steal or murder or commit adultery or all these things. And neither can we. 
Adam can eat prawns. Um, Adam can boil a goat in its mother's milk. All that sort of stuff. The ceremonial stuff hasn't kicked in because there's no tabernacle. And so when you see laws that are there before Sinai and after and are kind of linked to those Ten Commandments as a kind of summary, that's a pretty clear clue that they are ongoing laws for all humanity at all times. And that's why they then come back up in the New Testament too. So do we obey the Old Testament law? Not all of it directly. Um, some of it is, is pointing to Christ and has therefore passed away. Some of it is about one state. And so we have to work a bit harder to see if there's some sort of principle underneath. But the moral things bind us. That still leaves loads of questions, I realise, and lots of hard work to understand it. But it gives you a bit of a grid. When someone comes along and says, oh, you Christians are so inconsistent. You um, keep banging on about the rules about sex or something, and yet you, you eat prawns. And you're like, well, OK, it doesn't actually work quite like that. You've seen the West Wing, the president. He goes on this massive speech about how inconsistent Christians are and stupid biblicists and... You know, do you, are you wearing, I see, madam, you're wearing a coat made of two different, two different kind of uh, materials, um, and yet you're really worried about gay marriage. Um, shows you're a hypocrite. No, it shows she can read the Bible. Um, she understands that there are different types of laws. There we go. Um, lots to think about there. Next week, we, we'll, we'll slow down a bit and think about the tabernacle. Let me pray, and we'll go next door. Father in heaven, um, we pray that you would renew our minds, that we would see the world, see our lives, our families, our church um, through your eyes and not our own. Uh, we pray that you would write uh, the words of your law on our hearts, that we would delight in obeying you. Um, bless us this morning as we meet. Um, would you come and meet with us and do us good, we pray. Um, you have rescued us far more greatly even than you did the Israelites. And so we pray that we would gather and worship with joy now. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.